As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. And we're live. All right. Uh, welcome to, or welcome back to Way Back Wednesday. Uh, joining me today, as he does each and every Wednesday, is uh, Kevin McKenna, senior editor at National Dragster, um, drag racing savant, uh, basically encyclopedia of, uh, of all things racing. Uh, he's the perfect uh, co-host for uh, something like this. So, Kevin... Um, Let's start off here, man. How are you? What, what's Jeez, your I, I, I'm embarrassed by the flattery. Um, <laughs> I really, I'm just a guy that tunes in on Wednesday, and, and, and we talk a little drag racing history. Um, but everything's well. Uh, I think, you know, as we've discussed every week for the last month or two, it seems like we're progressing. Um, I know there's a, an announcement coming up today from NHRA regarding the, the schedule for the rest of uh, 2020, and, and it looks promising. Um, I think it's it's the attitude that I've seen is is very positive that uh, the events that are going to be announced will, will indeed take place. And, uh, you know, you've got some points meets now. You've got a points meet coming up this weekend in Atlanta. And I think hopefully that's a sign that uh, there's a sense of normalcy returning uh, uh, on, on a number of fronts. But, uh, um, you know, for, for, for those of us who uh, live, breathe drag racing, uh, it, it seems like we're starting to get uh, the pulse back a little bit. Yeah, which is great to see. Like, we could just use some optimism in general. Like, I feel like it's been maybe the saddest week of what's been a, a sad year, right? And I, yeah. it's, uh, I don't know, been troubling on such a variety of levels. I guess for me, it's it's been maybe a bit of a catalyst for thought. Maybe not necessarily new thoughts, new ideas, but stuff that's always just kind of conveniently been at the at the back of my mind that is now at the forefront and just kind of questioning you know preconceived maybe even subconscious beliefs sorting through some of the I don't know like the idea of conditioning versus conscious decisions making sure, sure that um, 
making sure, I guess, that I'm making decisions for myself. And, and yeah. maybe just the idea that I'm sorting through this, like perhaps mm -hmm. for the first time in, in my life at 39 years old, like maybe yeah. that is the definition of white privilege, right? Yeah, maybe, but you know, I mean, times, right. like, this, times like this can give you a moment of clarity. Right. And it's never really a bad thing to step back a little bit and uh, kind of reevaluate who you are, who you want to be, and, and the sort of life you want to live. Um, I, I think that benefits all of us. Yeah, no, and that's, uh, so I don't know, like I'm, uh, I feel like I'm working through it, trying to broaden perspective. Clarity is probably out there somewhere, but admittedly yeah. at this point, uh, it, it seems fairly distant. So well, um, I, I, I like your chances of, of finding it. Um, you, 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 you have an analytical mind and I think you, you have the ability to look at things from a number of different directions. And um, that I, I think is, uh, you know, key, key to what we're trying to do here. So. I appreciate that. If um, all right, so for our uh, for our audience here, I guess if you've if you've tuned in to way back Wednesday to to get your news or uh, or like an op ed on the world at large from Kevin <laughs> and I, you probably got bigger issues than than we can yes, help you with. I, right, I yeah. think that you're here uh, largely like looking for a, a pleasant distraction and and perhaps a, a throwback to what at least feel like simpler times right yes. today we're not going to go very far back we're going to go back one full decade i think this is probably the nearest to the future date that we're going to get with way back wednesdays but we're going to dive into 2010. Mm -hmm. and, and and yeah as you pointed out it is only 10 years ago but wow a, a lot has changed and, and even if you just break that down into drag racing terms only a lot has changed um mm -hmm. uh, so yeah we, we can uh, we can dive in and, and get to the uh the headlines of the year. All right, so to set the stage, 2010, to, to jog your memory just a little bit, uh, South Africa hosts the World Cup, uh, devastating earthquake in Haiti. The iPad made its debut. Uh, mm -hmm. San Francisco Giants won the World Series. The Lakers beat the Celtics in the NBA. I remember the NCAA tournament vividly. Um, you guys know I'm a hoops head. Uh, this was the first of back-to-back -back national championship game national championship runner-up runs for mm -hmm. the Butler Bulldogs. And this was the one that was just so heartbreakingly close. Gordon Hayward's <laughs> desperation, half-court heave at the buzzer was like was that close to, to winning Butler the national championship. Uh, UConn women, surprise, surprise, won their second consecutive uh, national championship. In, the, in hockey, it was the Chicago Blackhawks taking first Stanley Cup in 49 years and the New Orleans Saints defeated the Indianapolis Colts in the Super Bowl. Uh, movies from 2010, this doesn't seem that old, that, that long ago at all. Um, the Social Network was a big hit. Grown Ups, big hit. Mm -hmm. um, Despicable Me and Tangle. Um, 2010, the year that Prince William proposed to Kate Middleton. Mark Zuckerberg was voted Time's Person of the Year. He's the youngest to receive that honor since 1927. Just another picture of how you know perception has changed a little bit over the last decade, and uh, 2010 again the the year of uh, the final season of Oprah, Oprah Winfrey's famous talk show. Kevin, what about you? What was going on in your world in 2010? A, a lot of work, you know. It was a busy year in NHRA, doing a lot of traveling. Um, it was interesting. I think 2010 was probably about the time I started to seriously consider coming back east and, and leaving California for Indianapolis. You know, I know I came here, um, obviously for the U.S. Nationals, but also 
I think I came in early for uh, the MotoGP race at Indianapolis Motor Speedway and, and kind of looked around and had a chance to take a few days and, uh, you know, see what, uh, you know, what it would be like to, to live here and work here. And uh, it, it seemed really appealing just given the culture of motorsports and uh, the opportunities that were here. And I didn't think it would take me four years to make it happen, but um, ultimately it did. So. It was in 14 that you guys actually made the move. Yeah. Yeah. October of 14. Um, okay. So you were thinking about relocating in 2010. 2010 was the year that I, I did relocate, uh, moved from Northern Alabama up to where we currently reside now in Southern Illinois to, uh, to be with my wife and, or to be with my then girlfriend, uh, future wife, current wife, Jessica, um, for on a, on a racing, um, standpoint, 2010 was really, we had talked on a, on a previous episode, 2009, I, I'd won my first NHRA national event after literally a decade of, of trying. 2010 was my first foray into really chasing NHRA points and um, had a lot of fun with that, had a lot of success. The, the end result was a, was a kick in the teeth, for lack of a better term. But looking back, uh, it was a really solid season all the way around and, and particularly kind of the, the foundation for some future NHRA success. Um, and let's start there. Let's, uh, I'll throw it to you more than anything to kind of run through the professional ranks in NHRA. Take us back to 2010 and Fuel Funny Car Pro Stock. Sure. Top Fuel, it was all Larry Dixon. Larry Dixon and the Allen Abbey team with Alan Johnson. Um, you know, Alan had previously left uh, Tony Schumacher and the Army team gone on this new venture, and uh, they pretty much beat the daylights out of the rest of the field. Um, this would have been year two for the Alan Abbey team, right? cor Correct, and, uh, you know, D Dixon won 12 of 24 events, and even more impressive than that, he was 12-0 and 0 in final rounds. Um, so so to, to get there and, and get to the money round and, and not have it go wrong one time is, is almost unheard of. Um, I think he won, uh, won the championship by more than 100 points over Tony Schumacher, so it was pretty much a whitewash from start to finish. And this was uh, countdown time. So obviously he domi dominated the countdown as well. He, he, yeah, he did. Um, but, you know, was, was in first place for uh, all but maybe a handful of events during the season. And um, really, you know, hard not to argue that, that this wasn't the best team, probably the best pro team in, in any class at, at that time. Um, Although, funny car, we did have another John Force championship. This one was much closer. It was 42 points over Matt Hagen. Um, Force went to 11 finals and had six wins. Uh, he did win the final two races. I, I know coming into Pomona, uh, he was in second place, but uh, managed to win the race. Um, the interesting thing, uh, not is what happened there, there's not so much in winning the championship, but what happened after, which was immediately after the finals, and and I do mean immediately, like after the winter circle, uh, Austin Coyle packed his bags and left, never to return as a Nitro crew chief. And, you know, if you know Coyle, he had been the, the key to really all of Force's success, you know, with him up to that point for every single one of his wins. Um, and I think Austin had just had enough. You know, he'd, he'd been on the road most of his life and accomplished everything he wanted. And, you know, times when I know that he and John maybe didn't see eye to eye on everything. and um, I think it started as a moment of frustration, but then once he got a little bit into retired life, so, sort of enjoyed it. And, you know, he's still around. You still see him from, from time to time, but, uh, you know, he's obviously got no interest in a full-time gig out there now. So I don't, I don't remember the details of that. That was obviously an, an unexpected announcement in the, in light of 
the championship and, and all the, the drama that went with that. Yeah. I mean, I, I will just tell you from, from my personal thing, leaving the track that night, you know, probably two, three hours after the finals, walking through the staging lanes that were dark, they had just wrapped up Winter Circle. I saw Coyle walking and, um, you know, just congratulated him on winning the championship and you know, maybe said something about, oh, you know, you can go for a number, whatever it would have been next year, 16. And he says, not me, I'm done. And, and that was it. And he just walked away. And, and then, of course, the next morning we heard that, that he'd, he'd officially resigned. And, um, you know, that, that was big. You, you know, you, you look at the two of them as being synonymous. That was Batman and Robin. Sure. And it was hard to imagine one without the other. Um, but, you know, to his credit, you look at John, he, he's, he's a survivor and, you know, he's since gone on to, you know, the people who thought he'd be nothing without Austin Coyle, well, he proved them wrong. He's since won a couple more championships. He still has a very competitive team. Um, I, I also remember you had a lot of movement that year. I think, you know, Mike Neff raced in 2010, um, but by 11, he became a full-time crew chief again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you, it's a chessboard. You move the pieces around and you hope you, you hit on the right combination and, you know, John, John has been able to do that pretty consistently throughout his career. What about um, Hagen? And forgive my, my ignorance here. He's yet to win a national championship. Is he no, right? he's, he's a two-time champion. He's, oh, see, see what I know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, his, Disregard uh, that I, comment. I, 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 believe, I believe his first one came in 12. Okay. So um, two years removed from that. 12, 12 or 13. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to look. It, it's, the, the mind goes as you get older. But, um, but yeah, no, he's... You know, he's done well, but uh, at that point, he came up 42 points short. Um, mm-hmm. You know, ha- had a really solid season, but uh, John winning the final two races was kind of the, kind of the end of it. Um, Pro Stock, no real surprise at the time. Greg Anderson, dominant season, cruises to the championship by 112 points over Greg Stanfield. Uh, although it was interesting that uh, Greg started the countdown in fifth place, which is a little uncharacteristic for him. But uh, he went in there, uh, I think the second and third races, he won Charlotte and Dallas back-to-back, took the lead, and, and managed to, to hang on to that. Uh, probably I remember the, Stanfield being a real threat, maybe yes. early in the countdown, and how surprising and how, as sportsman racers, like we were all cheering yes. that on, right? Yeah, you look at Greg. He, he, he was a little bit like some of the other guys, a lot like Bo Butner, where when he first got into pro stock, really found that, you know, you'd bitten off almost more than you could chew it took a while to for it all to come together but by this point in his career he was as good as anyone um, obviously making good power he had enough budget at that time to, to do what needed to be done so yeah greg had a really really solid season um just in the end you know countdown being what it is uh greg anderson had a little better car a little better luck pulled it off the really interesting story that i know from 2010 was Ellie Tonglet's ride to the Pro Stock Motorcycle Championship. Uh, I mean, here was, first of all, rookie season, so it's rare that a rookie ever wins, but comes out, and, and the first thing is the, the team, family-run team, they were pretty much out of money at Brainerd. They'd broken some parts. They weren't even going to go to Indy. At the last minute, they scraped together enough to fix an engine. Um, and then, miraculously, they didn't just show up at Indy. They won Indy. They also were introduced to Kenny Koretsky, who basically looked at them and says, you know, this is a kid that has a ton of potential. Let me throw a few dollars at him. They put the bike in the nitrofish colors, and he was money during the countdown. Um, you know, held on, won the title by, over Andrew Hines by four points. But the, what the two of them did was just trade body blows for the six races. 
you know, Andrew was in four of the six finals during the countdown, but LE was in five finals and won four of them. Um, Tonglet went 21 and two during the countdown. And, and that, that allowed him to, uh, you know, get in there and, and win really, you know, it was the, I think the semifinals on the last day of the season when the championship was finally decided and it, it was pretty impressive. Yeah, no, I, I vaguely remember the drama of that. I love the way that you relive that. So Tonglet's rookie season to come back from that. And at that time, you said Koretsky to the rescue. And am I confused or was Nitrofish also the headline sponsor on Stanfield's car at that time? Or was that? Uh, I, you know, I don't it, it may have been that year. Yeah. Yeah, because I know that, uh, you know, Kenny was involved there. You know, he's always had an involvement. At one time, he owned Clay Milliken's team. Um, so yeah, he he was throwing around a few dollars at that point. Um, you know, the the other interesting thing, obviously, the Tonglet bike, like most of the Suzuki's out there, powered by a Vance and Heinz engine. So you know, it, it, as as much as some people kind of look at the bike class, um, I don't know if they, they they you know don't don't always maybe have the, the highest opinion of it, but but you look at what Vance and Heinz does, where they they will sell competitive power to their opponents. And, you know, that was a prime example of what someone can do. And really without a lot of money, you know, the Tonglet budget that year, probably the smallest budget for any full-time touring team on the circuit. Yet they, you know, went out, won a lot of races, won the championship. Uh, really kind of a great story. Had some surprising uh, results in the professional categories throughout the year as well. I think, uh, Probably the, the one that stands out is Bob Bodie winning Funny Car Brainerd. Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to ever say that, that WJ winning a pro stock race is a surprise, but here in the twilight of his career, that last win at Gateway was definitely, he, he kind of came from nowhere, right? Sure. Uh, you know, Bob Bodie is, and this is one of, one of the many things I love about drag racing, and say what you want about the rules, but you still have a sport, and, and even to this day, 10 years later, where the little guy can make it. You know, a guy that doesn't run all the races. You know, if, if you are smart, if you spend the money in the right places, have the right people, and maybe get a break, uh, you can do it. And, you know, Bob Bodie's a guy that maybe runs a half dozen times a year, but he comes out, he has good parts, he has smart people, and you can do it. And, and you, you look at today, Clay Milliken, Terry McMillan, you know, Tim Wilkerson, people like that, they are still competitive in this sport, whereas in something like NASCAR, the, the single car guys, the independent owners, they've been gone for decades. And, and, and I'm that's one of the things I really enjoy that, you know, the, the smart guys can, can still survive out here. And it's, um, it, it's great. So, but we will now move on to the Warren Johnson thing, which is really probably one of the most unusual occurrences of the year. Uh, okay. For, first of all, to set the backdrop, that was, you know, he beat Jed Coughlin in the final. Um, it was his 97th and final pro stock win. Uh, Jeg had won top dragster at that event an incredible performance you know he was i think a 009 package in the semis a 10 pack in the final he's driving his brother john's car gets it done um and he has the best car in pro stock he's almost certain to win goes to the final against warren dumps the clutch and breaks the rear end and that was the third of four rounds that warren had won due to an opponent broke uh, he beat ron krischer in the first round when Krischer was horribly late and then Alan Johnson, Mike Edwards and Jag all break. And I mean, that just doesn't, that doesn't even happen in nitro racing, much less pro stock. 
So that, that really pretty incredible. Yeah, no, I was there for that one. And I, I don't know, I think I might've been in on Sunday and lost early. So I, I remember watching the, the late rounds of pro stock. And to your point, I had actually forgotten that Jagged won top dragster, but I remember just assuming, well, because top dragster ran first, you know, and that yes. seals it. He's, he's, he's doubled up. Yeah. And then to, uh, to watch WJ win, which is actually with my, I guess it would be my grandfather-in-law. Mm-hmm. huge wj fan so yeah he was living it up so i yeah. think that's probably what i remember more than anything yeah i, I believe jag had um six hundreds on warren so, so so he's almost whole shot proof at that point you know he's gonna double uh, and he's one, jag. he just doesn't doesn't make mistakes right exactly yeah um if, if you were vegas booking odds for that uh, warren would easily have been a double digit dog um the, the, the one visual I remember from that, you know, I knew that WJ had gotten lucky when, when Alan Johnson broke, but I remember him, he, Warren and Mike Edwards sitting under the tower before the semis and thinking, oh, Mike is going to crush him. You know, Mike probably had him covered by four or five. And then you look over and they've got the front end off of Edwards' car and they can't get it to crank. And you just think, wow, I mean, I mean how is this guy going to a final? You know, I think he qualified, pretty sure he qualified in the bottom half of the field. Um, but, you know, again, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, on any given day, you can, you can get it done. Uh, but it was interesting that it took five more years for Jag to finally get his double um, when he won uh, stock in, I think, Super Gas at the Sports Nationals in Columbus. Correct, right. Yeah. Um, this was part of, we, we talk, discussed this a little bit on a, on a previous season's uh, episode about how I think it largely, I don't want to say forgotten, but underrated Dave Connolly's time in pro stock was. This was a, a marquee season for Dave on a, on a number of levels. Not only was he experiencing success at the highest level in pro stock, mm-hmm. also captured um, national event wins that season in Supergas and Top yes. Dragster. Yes. Uh, the, the versatility of that guy, like just, we've talked about it here before the natural talent is unbelievable and that's just a testament to it yeah yeah he uh i think he won five or six events in pro stock but to, to just jump in a super gas car a top dragster wh- whatever you want to put him in he's a guy who's going to find uh, find a way to get it done a uh, couple more notes we had from the 2010 season as it relates to pro racing um you know the memphis track which the year before had been announced they would not have their national event uh, it was sold for a little less than $2 million to an investor group. Eventually, that became the IHRA owners. Um, and, and also, Don Pernone called it a career as far as uh, a team owner. After, you know, four championships and 49 wins as a driver, you know, he had a great career as a, as a team owner. Ron Capps, Tommy Johnson, the people, um, he just, uh, you know, at that point, I think he was probably uh, pushing 70, um, late 60s, and and just you know, it had had enough of life on the road. He still looks so young, like full of life. He, I see his Twitter posts all the time. Like he's into everything. He, he does. You know, the fact that he does the Baja racing down in Mexico and that's the sort of thing that will beat up a young man, but uh, he gets in there and goes and he has a blast and he hangs out with, uh, uh, you know, all the celebrities. He's tight with Mario Andretti and, and uh, yeah, the, the, the man lives a charmed life. All right, so let's turn the page over to the, the NHRA Lucas Oil Series. Um, mm-hmm. I guess we'll start with Top Alcohol and Top Alcohol, or Top Alcohol Dragster, Top Alcohol Funny Car. 
no surprise in, in either category. This seems like a broken record for everything late 2000s, basically everything in the 2000s yeah. for, for Top Alcohol Funny Car specifically. Uh, but the Dragster champion, once again, Bill Reichert, and obviously Ace Manzo in Top Alcohol Funny Car with a, a seemingly human total score of only 808 points. It, it was yeah, not, yeah. It, was a, it was a year just short of perfection. For Frank Manzo. Yeah, c- coming off a couple of perfect 850-point campaigns, he slips up a little, th- throws in maybe a runner-up or a semi here or there, uh, only gets to 808. But, um, you know, again, and, and that was still Frank in his prime. You know, he wouldn't retire for another three, three four years. Uh, Riker, you know, I think that may have been the final of his five championships. But, uh, you know, there was a time when that car was just pr- pretty much money and um, you know, would do everything you needed to do to, to win, to, to have success, the divisional races, to be strong at the national events you went to. Uh, really impressive comp. Uh, Al Ackerman, uh, a, a pretty much a monster score for comp, which is 717 points. Uh, when he won three national events, including Indy. And it was interesting because coming off a championship by Bruno Massel in a turbo car, here you had this little four-cylinder dragster that got it done. But to me, that's the beauty of comp that, you know, if you can find a combination and I don't even want to say exploit it, that's probably not fair, but work it as hard as you, you know, put in the effort, find a combination you think has potential. Um, you can, you can do a lot in there. And, and obviously, you know, Al Ackerman did that that season. That's, I was going to speak to the the uniqueness of his combination, but I feel like when you say unique competition eliminator combination, that's kind of redundant, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, I think people look, you know, even even today, you know, there's quite a few super modified cars out there, traditional altered, you know, V8 door slammer cars. But we've seen a trend in more recent years with Frank Aragona, the, the car that Doug Dahl drove, you know, that of, you know, four and six cylinder cars, you know, the Ambrose team that had so much success. Um, you know, there's still, uh, st- still a lot of room for innovation in there. And Again, if, if you, uh, you know, want to sit down with a rule book and go over it with a fine-tooth comb, I, I think you can pick out combinations that have some potential and, um, you know, again, put in, put in the time and effort and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's all out there for the taking. Um, Superstock, we had a really interesting development. Actually, you, you had a thought on that? No, no, I was just going to uh, transition into Superstock. Oh, so Superstock, Ryan McClanahan, um, third-generation champion. His grandfather won back-to-back stock championships in the early 70s. Uh, it would be years later that his father, Brian, would win the stock championship. But, um, you know, Ryan basically descended from drag racing royalty, got it done uh, in stock. Brad Burton, um, really a, a pretty talented guy who at the time was out of Denver, currently lives in, in the Seattle, Washington area. But uh, he won Pomona to stock start the year and just kept rolling and rolling. And uh, one of the things I liked and remembered about Brad is he, he uh, he's a very outgoing guy. His banquet speeches were, were fairly memorable. Oh, I could see that. I could definitely see that from Brad. Yeah. He, um, he knew how to, he knew how to entertain a crowd. It was, it was, it was good. <laughs> yeah. Um, this was second national championship for Burton, I believe. Correct. Uh, I know yeah. he's won two. I, 
I thought the other one was 2012, but I could. Okay, be this again, may have been again the, the memory. Okay. The memory fails me at times. Right. Yeah, I know that he's he's captured two of them, and mm-hmm. this one in particular was a really tightly contested battle. His his championship score, I believe, was just over 600. It was one of six, the six, 616, I think. Yeah, yeah, one of the lower scores to win it, and obviously that means there was a ton of parity. And I yes. think that the uh, the top. I don't know, five to eight that season were a tighter grouping than you would normally see. And actually mm-hmm. one of those uh, in contention down the stretch was Ryan McClanahan, who was yes. not only won the, the Superstock mm-hmm. Championship, but also, uh, I don't know where he ended up finishing in stock, but definitely in the top 10 and, and in those late season races vying for the championship. Um, yes. Can we skip Super Comp? I don't want to talk about Super Comp. Uh, if, you want, if you want, if you want. When he... <laughs> If he calls me, I will direct the call to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's been a decade, so the wounds aren't quite as fresh. Um, but uh, but no, this one was, was hard to swallow at the time. Your champion, Gary Stinnett, third of four, uh, first of what would be two in a row, uh, back-to-back Supercomp championships. He's the only the second driver to ever do that, uh, just a couple of years behind Sean Langdon doing the same thing. Um, I think, you know, at, at one time, I guess you could lump – Scotty and Edmund into that group, but I, I think Stinnett separated himself. Like I, I think it's hard to argue that he's not the most illustrious, maybe super class, certainly super comp racer of all time. Yeah, I, I think so. And 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 the thing about Stinnett that the one thing that separates him from almost everybody else, period, is his ability to do everything. This is a guy who worked on a pro stock team. You know, he worked with Warren Johnson when he jumped. He can build engines. He can build cars. He can tune. He does carburetors and obviously he can drive. And to me, there's a handful of guys uh, like Stinnett, like Jeff Taylor, like Greg Stanfield, that you can lock them in a garage with a pile of parts. And by the time they're done, you will have a functioning competitive race car and they will get in it themselves and go out and win races. And, and really the list of people that can do that. I mean, I'm sure there's a number of others, but the list of pe- people who can do that these days is fairly short. And, and Stinnett is certainly one of the guys that, but, you know, I can't really think of anything in drag racing that he can't do. No, that's well said because he's got such a unique set of skills and he's so smart and he's so talented. And Chris Whitfield and I were actually talking about this when he was on our, our story time segment last week. It, the cerebral approach that he has to competition is just simply unmatched. Like mm-hmm. he, I think he's smarter than everybody, but he thinks through <laughs> things a whole lot more than everyone else. Like there is a reason that, that he has achieved the success that he has. Now, the reason that I was a little bit trepid of talking about this particular season, uh, this, this one was a, was a heartbreaker for me. I ended up finishing uh, second in super comp points. And the way that this all shook down was I, um, Stinnett actually kind of came, I don't want to say from nowhere because he's Gary Stinnett, but say, in um, early August, Gary was hardly on the radar. It looked like it was Ray Ray Miller's championship to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in contention. Edmund Richardson had had a good year. Um, but uh, Ray Ray was the odds-on favorite uh, just off a, a tremendous early season run. And then Stinnett won Brainerd. The very next week, he won the points meet at Topeka, which was an eight-rounder yeah. leading up to Indy. Then he always goes deep at Indy. And, like, all mm-hmm. of a sudden, there's Gary. We go, or th- my season came to a close at the, the Division Two event at Reynolds. And I've told this story a number of times, but it, it's arguably like the coolest thing I've ever done in my, in my racing life. So I'm going to, just let me have my moment. The, 
I go to Reynolds and I wasn't even going to go. I had one race left to claim. I, um, Ray Ray was far enough in the lead that if I won the race and he lost first round, we would tie for the national championship. And I actually called Josh Peterson at NHRA to make sure that I understood the tiebreak procedure that I would win in that event. And I'm like, well, that settles it. I guess I got to go. Like I had considered not even going right. 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 Like, well, you have a chance, like how often in life are you going to have a chance? You got to go. So I try, cause at this point, like uh, Gary and Edmund had a shot. Like I, I felt like it was Ray Ray's championship to lose. So first round Ray Ray's got to lose. Right. So I chase him to the, st- to, to the line. Like I'm trying to run him. We miss by one car. So he's in front of me and I'm in the water box and he, he turns it red, I want to say, by a thousandth of a second or two. And as his car hit the tires, the coil wire fell off, of all things. Like, if there's ever a sign, like, hey, this isn't meant to be, right? Yeah, right. So I'm sitting in the water box. I'm like, wow, okay, I have a chance, right? It's first round. And at that point, the whole, like, the pressure is completely off. Because what are the odds, right? right. And so he loses. You're like, all right, cool. And uh, so I win that round. It's Saturday afternoon. Gets me into Sunday. Go a couple more rounds Sunday. Well, the next thing you know, there's like six cars left. And now with every round, that, that distant like dream, like, oh, wouldn't it be cool? Like it becomes more and more realistic. And then the pressure, completely self-induced, mounts more and more every round. I doubt there was five people at the racetrack that realized what was potentially at stake for me. But obviously I knew, right? Right, right. And uh, in the quarterfinals, I, I, Edmund and I raced. And when that win like came on, I'm, I'm really excited, right? Mm-hmm. And then end up... Um, winning the final round and i'm telling you that wind light came on and i always put my car in a neutral and shut it off i think you could hear me screaming <laughs> from the starting line right i mean it just as excited as excited could be for all of that to come into play and, and thinking like i just won the world championship like holy you know and and had to win the race to do it it's still it, it as i'll go on it, it didn't work out but it's still probably like the most incredible feeling that i've had in my racing career to to kind of be able to summon that performance or have the pieces fall into place, you know, seemingly on command or, or, or when you needed it most. So it was awesome. Fast forward a couple of weeks, Stinnett had one event left, was the Vegas division race. I sat, it wasn't in this office. It was in uh, what's now my, my son's bedroom, watching online timing. Gary had to win the fifth round at Vegas to pass me. Uh, past me and Ray Ray, but again, I would I, I was leading on the tiebreaker, and uh, I sat there and watched him do just that. He, he he lost in round six to eclipse me by whatever it was, less than ten points, and, and win his third national championship. So, not a great feeling, but again, like you you can't sit back and have anything but respect for Gary and the way that he goes about business. So, his brilliance really doesn't take the sting out of it, though, does it? It's better now, ten years later. I'll just say that. Time does heal all wounds. Super gas. This was the David Tatum season and one of many, like I say, the David Tatum season. It was the David yeah. Tatum championship season. Uh, he's yeah. been top 10 multiple times. This was the year they really broke through over the hump. I believe Furter was second that year, but yeah. it wasn't particularly close. I think Tatum no. was close to 700 points. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, David Tatum, a genuinely good guy. And, you know, you, you look at he and, and Sherman Adcock as being longtime buddies and almost maybe maybe this isn't fair but a guy who sort of lived in Sherman's shadow a little bit but then comes out and has a monster season wins a championship and yeah as you pointed out has been a pretty competitive guy his entire career um so good good to see him uh get one done um you know a couple other notes we had you know we already covered Jeg's near double um just 
you know, the, the magnificent job he did in Top Dragster, though, is what, you know, a class that he had almost no experience, a car that his brother's car that he'd probably maybe driven once or twice before, and he just gets in it and takes to it like a duck to water. Um, we did not have any doubles in that season, 2010 season, but Kevin Helms did go to a pair of final rounds in Topeka and very rare occurrence to lose both of them, um, especially for a guy with Kevin's ability. Um, he, he lost both the super stock and the stock final. Uh, the other interesting race that I remember when I was just looking through the chart of winners, Sal Biondo won super stock at Gainesville. Now he was driving the old Zachiva that Jeff Taylor had, I believe he won Pomona back the finals the previous year. I and think I've heard this story. This that, is good. Yeah. That, that Vinnie Barone saw the car and said, I have to have it. And um, Jeff Taylor was happy to sell it to him. And the story I remember from Jeff was that, you know, Vinnie likes to pay for things in cash. So whatever the price was that they agreed in, and I'm sure it was not a cheap car, uh, Vinnie put it in a FedEx box and sent it. No, just however, however many thousands of dollars it was. And I know Jeff telling me that, you know, you know, Vinny saying, hey, I sent the money, you'll have it tomorrow. Well, something happened around Jeff's shop where the, they, they missed the FedEx delivery. So, so basically, he and Patty got in their cars and pretty much chased the FedEx truck around the town until they finally found him, got, that, got their money. But, um, but yeah, amazing to me that a, a guy like Vinny buys a car. And never mind buying it for cash. It's just kind of a funny story. But you buy the car. You, you put Sal in it and he goes out there. And I think, I think that was the first race. Maybe they ran the points meet the week before, but I think first race, he's money goes out and wins the Gator Nationals. See, I believe I'm trying to, yeah, this was the, this was the, I was at the Gators that year. It's the only time I've been, mm -hmm. it had, it rained all week and, and the, at, maybe it didn't rain on Saturday, but the sportsman pits were so soaked, like you couldn't even get out mm -hmm. of them. And we got one time trial Sunday morning and then ran the entire race to completion after the, the pro show Sunday night. It was, a, it was a really late Sunday finish. And the only reason that that registers in my mind when you talk about Sal, because the way that I heard the story of that event, to your point, he had never sat in the car prior. Correct. It was one time trial Sunday morning after mm -hmm. it had been you know, raining all week. He gets in the car to like warm it up. Literally the first time that he sat in it Sunday morning and realizes he can't reach the pedals. <laughs> and so they're they're rigging all kind of stuff up the first time run was a complete disaster i, I see i vaguely remember sal telling me this story yeah. and then seven rounds later he's he's hoisting the trophy yeah, yeah. And, and it's actually the, the, the funny the things you think of yes i remember him saying that that he says you know my, my neck doesn't work i get used to so i couldn't turn around to judge i had to dial honest uh, the other thing about that event i guess that i remember with the rain that was the race where kurt bush nascar champion raced in super gas with his challenger. And the cool thing about that was Kurt sat in the mud in the rain, just like every other sportsman racer. He waited till Sunday to run and uh, he didn't seem to mind it at all. He, he was, you know, he learned a lot. He got to meet a lot of racers. It was just a cool environment for him. And uh, obviously he came back, I think the following year, maybe two years later and ran the pro stock race. Um, but yeah, that was when he had his street legal challenger uh, that he entered in super gas. Yeah, I, that had slipped my memory completely as well. Mm -hmm. Was his was his lone pro stock race? Was that Gainesville as well? Yes. Yeah. Okay, he, that's interesting. Um, you know, rented a car from Alan Johnson. Uh, did did really well. Qualified high, but drew Erica Enders first round, and um, I think he was fairly competitive. He was, I think, forty or fifty on the tree, but you know, she she did her usual job with a with a twenty or better, and 
Um, actually, I think she may have beat him on a whole shot, a very small whole shot. But yeah, um, I think you're right. That that seems to stick in my mind as well. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Normally, we try to include um, a little snippet to IHRA. Again, apologies. I saw that Matt Weston had, had made a comment on the Facebook page. We need to get the IHRA champs in here. Sorry, Matt. We couldn't not find any solid evidence from 2010. Again, uh, we've said this before, but the, the IHRA website had crashed at some point, and finding valid data from that area is just difficult. So we apologize. We're going to transition right to the big dollar bracket scene. And as I had mentioned before, this was the first time in, in, in my racing career that my focus was really on NHRA. We were running um, super comp and stock eliminator that season, my buddy, Brian Robinson's Nova. Um, so I didn't make all of the big dollar bracket races, but I still, and I, when I look back on the season, I'm like, man, I was racing a lot. <laughs> I mean, between the 14 NHRA races and I went to most of these races, most of these, uh, I have vivid memories of one that I do not is the, the longest running 50 grander in the country, the, uh, the world super pro challenge. I'm 99% sure I did not make it to Stanton this season for whatever reason. Uh, and this was the year that champ won it. This was uh, Stephen McCrory winning that 50 grander over my buddy bones, uh, Todd Ewing champ won. Uh, I don't know how many 50 plus granders he's won, but it, it seems like, it's nearly a handful. Like he is, he has always shown up when the stakes were the highest. I don't know that this was necessarily the first for him, but I think it was fairly early in the, in the progression of his career. Yeah. The million, well, we could do a podcast on the 2010 million all by itself. Right. So this was the year, this is Randy's first year running it. Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. So Randy Folk had just taken over from um, George Howard. And the million had been at Memphis for several years prior to this. Randy, and it really, it, it felt like it was a bigger deal, like taking it to Indy, taking it to the, you know, the Mecca of drag mm -hmm. racing. That was the plan. And then we literally get to Indy. I guess it's Tuesday or Wednesday, right? Of probably Wednesday of Million Dollar Week. And it's obvious that this is not going to come together the way that everyone assumed that it would come together for the, the, the specific reasoning behind that, I think depends on exactly who you talk to. So I, I won't speculate. I, I've got my memories, but I think that they were probably clouded um, in, in some sort of bias. But regardless, the decisions made, like it's literally a driver's meeting in the staging lanes on the, the, in the east side staging lanes at, at Indy on Wednesday and it's Randy Folk and I remember Wes May being a big part of it just because he knew all of the area tracks mm -hmm. and they're like we can't have the million here and it's literally within three hours that the decision is made that the the um, track operators at Muncie Dragway say hey bring it here yeah. and there's just a caravan of 300 plus racers leaving Indy going to Muncie. It's the year that the million went to Muncie and nothing against the facility at, at Muncie Dragway, but it's just a, it's a, it's a nice place to race. It's not really even a, I, I feel like I've raced at plenty small racetracks. It's mm -hmm. not necessarily a small place. It's a small place to hold the million, right? It, it's, yeah. there, there's only so many facilities that are really built for an event like that. Um, so it was different. Like it, I guess it's to some extent like Muncie's probably on par with Huntsville. Like I, I never went to a million at Huntsville in the early days. And mm -hmm. I don't think it had quite gained the popularity that it did as it moved to Montgomery and then to Memphis. Um, but I, I assume it was probably similar to that, but the whole scene 
was just so bizarre. 10 years later, I look back on it and go, wait, what? <laughs> it was just wild. Once we got on the track at Muncie, uh, the, the big race, the, the million, it was uh, a man by the name of Larry Strickland, a Kentucky or perhaps West Virginia based racer, I think Kentucky, um, took the win over Richard Arnold, who hails from uh, up in Quebec, Canada. Um, like I say, just a, a memorable million to, to say the least. Um, okay, and this was the 2010 was also the, the first year of this, the, uh, it would have been the spring fling at, at Bristol mm -hmm. at that point. So Pete and Kyle's first foray into Braggart Race promotion. Um, and they, they tell this story so well as to how the, the first year wasn't not only was it not a home run, like it, it lost money, right? It, it yeah. was, I think the forecast was awful. It, it was decently attended, but nothing like they had anticipated. But really from a, from a racer and a sportsman racing fan standpoint, that wasn't the story. The yeah. story was John Lewis Jr. Uh, just absolutely. I don't know that I've ever, I've talked about what Scotty Richardson did at the Millennium Million. I think we, I think we talked about that last week mm -hmm. uh, back in 2000. That and watching Laboose at the Springfield Million are probably the two most dominant performances that I've ever seen in person. If you need a refresher, Laboose won the first day, the second day, and the third day in succession yeah. at the inaugural Spring Fling. And what I was most impressed about this, I think we talked about this maybe when we talked about our you know, the, our perception of the, the best season in, in sportsman drag racing history. And I just, I remember recently going back through the numbers from that race. LaBoost didn't like, there was no day in which he kind of backed his way into win. Like he kicked the hell out of everybody. Like it was really, really impressive from start to finish. Yeah. It, it's interesting. You know, you and I have had this discussion in prior weeks about when you get on a roll and, and you know, you, you do seem to have sometimes a pattern of uh, guys winning back-to-back -back events or going to finals. You know, I, I think you get in a groove and, and hopefully it, it carries over from day to day. But to, to, to win three out of four days against that level of competition, and, and my understanding was he'd won wherever they were the prior week, he had won that. So he was coming in off a win. Um, I, the research here showed that he went 27 straight rounds. Uh, on Sunday, he actually went to the fourth round Jeff Strickland mercifully put, put this to an end um, to, to restore a little bit of sanity to, to keep him from whitewashing the entire event. And um, as a, uh, as a, as 50, a, right? as a competitor at that event and a fan uh, of John LaBoose mm -hmm. Jr. I was of among the dozens in line to shake Jeff's hand after yeah. that round. <laughs> like, like, thank you for not letting him, post further embarrassment to the racing community, right? I mean, after, <laughs> after he'd won the third day, I'm surprised there wasn't a bounty. You know, people didn't, everybody didn't kick in 20 bucks. And it's just, it was so, so incredible. I mean, I don't, words can't explain, like you just don't see that type of domination at that level. I mean, you're talking, even then it was, it was probably the least attended fling in history, but there was 150 to 200 of the best racers in the country. And yeah. to have the same guy win three days in a row. It's just, it would have been an impressive feat if there were 25 cars every day. Sure. You're you know, right. uh, You're given that, right. given that level of competition. Um, yeah. It's uh, pretty amazing. You may never see that again, but 
I don't know. Maybe you will. <laughs> what's What's crazy when we look back on 2010, because I think that that's without question the most memorable moment mm -hmm. in um, big dollar bracket racing that season, the most memorable event. But largely like that overshadowed the season, the totality of Gary Williams. Mm -hmm. Gary yeah. had one of the most successful, one of the richest, one of the most illustrious seasons in big dollar bracket racing history in 2010. I'm just, I know that's, that was at the time where we did the, the BT power rankings on this is bracket racing.com. And he mm -hmm. was our driver of the year in almost a runaway. I, I think little John was second and it wasn't particularly close. And I'm just looking through our notes here. Um, Gary Williams won the biggest day of the other event at Bristol that year, which was an event promoted by Jeff Strickland and Dave Connolly, who we both talked about previously. It was the only time that they ever did this race. Kind of like the spring fling. It, it wasn't particularly successful. The purses even got cut slightly. I think it was supposed to be 25, 25, 50, and it might've been 20, 20, 40 or something like that. Like I, I believe that they paid back basically everything that they took in from the racers, but I had to cut the purse a little bit. Gary won the biggest day of that. So advertised 50 grander, uh, was joined in the winner's circle by Tommy Plott and Jason Lynch. So that's a pretty illustrious group, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I'm trying to look back. The At ATCO, Gary won a day that year. That was when the ATCO Super Bucks was still, you know, in at its height. Uh, at South Georgia, Gary won a 25 grander to kick off the winter series. Uh, followed that off with a win at Moroso. Had a couple of $20,000 wins at Montgomery along the way. I think he won a day at Tentuck at Bowling Green. I mean, it was just literally every other weekend, Gary's in the final. And usually when Gary's in the final for big money, Gary's holding the trophy at the end. Like his final round record is really unmatched on, on that scene. And uh, just what he accumulated over the course of the season in what is undoubtedly a Hall of Fame career, that's probably the highlight season from it. Yeah. And that kind of goes back to, to our prior discussions about splitting and things. And, and when you're on that kind of a roll, if you've won three 25 granders and a 50 grander, uh, are you less inclined when you get towards the end of the year and the bank account's full, you know, it, it seems like you would be less inclined to split, to do any sort of deal. You know, at that point, I, I would want to be independent um, of, of any sort of partnership, but um but it's interesting. Obviously, other people look at things a little different, and everyone's financial situation is a little different. But but yeah, it, it's it's hard to, for me to imagine the sort of confidence that goes with just turning on that many wind lights in the course of a year. You know, big money. It just you you are living life right at that point. Yeah, and it's funny because when I think back to that day and age like the no split final was almost unheard of. Like it was yeah. so uncommon. And, and I guess to some extent it still is, but you see a lot more of it today, like hell with it, we're just going to race for it. You know, and you hear stories of a, a no split 50 grander and, and no split, you know, five, 10, 20 granders are much more commonplace. But then like, I just, I don't remember anybody doing that. It was always getting cut up. Right, right. Um, all right. So some other big dollar bracket stories from the year, uh, the ultimate 64, at was it Edgewater this year that was won by Brian Newport uh, the 50 grander he actually beat me in the final I turned it red one of my several $50,000 win runner-ups I did come back later that night and beat uh, Troy Coughlin Jr. in the final of the 10 grander so uh, do, you, do you remember the split if since it was the $50,000 final I think we had cut it up earlier and I want to say it was maybe I think we had all 50 left in the final and I want to say 30 20 something in that range 
so yeah, I couldn't have been too completely upset, but yeah, I bumped it red in the final. And if I remember right, I think Brian was uncharacteristically late. Like if I just hadn't bumped down, it should have been a relatively easy win. But mm. another one of those that's just been conveniently kind of blocked from the memory. Um, the Jags US Open at, uh, at Indy, the winners, and this is every year, it's just a who's who. Uh, this, is, this, was, this was probably at that time what the spring fling has become since, right? This yeah. was Mike Fuquay and Dave Zerlag put on the Jags US Open. It started at Tri-State, it moved to Indy. And I think it's fair to say outside of the million and probably even eclipsing Moroso in that age as the prestigious, the must-win event. And uh, that year's winners, again, uh, <laughs> household names, Gary May, Peter Biondo, Edmund Richardson, and McKaggy. I don't remember if that was Jason or Jeremy, but neither one of them is a, is a surprise uh, to, to stand at the end hoisting the check at the Jags US Open. The Great American Bracket Race, uh, which had origins at Belrose, I believe this was year two for that event, uh, which is headlined by a 50 grander. That year's 50 was uh, Todd Ewing, who we mentioned earlier, owns in multiple $50,000 race finals that year. He was runner up to Stephen McCrory at Stanton, Michigan. He won the 50 at Belrose. Um, that's another one that I'll never forget. You know, I w 2010 was a heartbreaking season here in the, in the Bogaki Motorsports camp, right? Runner up at 50. I lose the national championship on basically the last day of the season at the 50 at Belrose. And that, that great American bracket race, 50 grander, I have been close a lot um, mm -hmm. and I've never won it. And I've never won any 50 grander for that matter, but that one's particular at five cars remaining. It was, well, uh, let me back up. Jason Lynch and I were traveling together. I had two dragsters. I think Jason had two dragsters. And for whatever reason, oh, it was because my, my super comp car, like 450s to the eighth, I couldn't race it eighth mile. Like I'd gone 480s for so many years. I kept screwing up going fast. And Jason loved to go fast. So we swapped cars. So I'm driving my slower car, Jason's car, and Jason's driving my faster car and his other car, I think, or maybe we we're doubling his car, whatever the case was. So at five cars remaining, it's Bones. It's a man by the name of Jim Calloway out of New Mexico. It's Jason in my fast car. It's me in my slow car and me in Jason's car. So with five entries left and a 50 grander, Jason and I have three entries. You know, I have a vested interest in three entries and Bones is probably my best friend, right? So like, this mm -hmm. is good. Well, at five, I believe Jason had the buy run. So I run, no, no, I had to run Jason. Callaway must have the buy run. I run Jason, I run Bones. I was red in the first car and then came back and was red in the second car. So I went from having two entries in a 50 grander to having zero entries in a 50 grander in like six minutes flat. And then uh, Jason ends up runner and up to Bones in the final. So somehow we, we laugh about it now, but in, in the day we were, at the, at the time we were pulling our hair out going, how on earth? We have three entries left at five cars and not win the freaking race. And I guess right. Bones is probably the biggest reason, but yeah, that's, that's how that went. <laughs> and that was another one. Like the, the split was interesting because I was not willing to do anything at five just because basically we had three entries in. Sure. And, uh, and so Bones got me back a little bit by the time we got to the final and he's like, all right. So I, I think he ended up getting the lion's share of that. <laughs> uh, okay. At Co, we talked briefly about uh, g-dub's mm. win rich door was a winner steve withrow was a winner peter biondo surprise surprise a win and a runner-up uh, along the weekend at atco 
um, I guess that takes us into the winter series. Um, and at this time, the, I, Immokalee might have had a race, but it was I believe like, they did. Yeah, it was ten, like a ten preview. grander, maybe. Yeah, yeah, preview. I think may have even been the week prior to South Georgia, but the big swing, north to south swing, was South Georgia to Bradenton to West Palm Beach. Um, south Georgia was Jerry Brewer, again the aforementioned Gary Williams winning a twenty-five grander, Chad Hedgecock winning a twenty-five grander. That Eagle Race Engines crew and, and Hedgecock mm -hmm. family had a had a big winter series that year as Corey, I believe, would win a day at Moroso to finish out the winter series. Um, at Bradenton, uh, Little Abuse wins two days and the overall points total. <laughs> Again, like just adding to a, an, an amazing season. Um, additional wins that weekend at Bradenton by Tom Head. I remember him, Tom winning in the roadster that year. Uh, Jason Lynch and myself. And then at West Palm, Dave Connolly. Again, just another uh, feather yeah. in the cap for an incredible 2010. I, I don't know if anybody can ever say that. Won a national event in Pro Stock, won a national event in Top Dragster, won a national event in Supergas, and won a day at Moroso. That, uh, Jag would be the only guy that would even have the opportunity <laughs> to pull that off. Right? <laughs> um, other winners, Gary Williams, again, uh, Carl Drake Jr., uh, mentioned earlier, Corey Hedgecock, and John Siegel won the last day at Moroso that year. Steve Sisko, uh, was runner-up in two of those days and won the dragster race. I do remember that being a huge weekend for Cisco. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like he was leading the, the five-day points going into the last day, which you'd expect after two runner-ups. And then uh, Troy Williams Jr. eclipsed him narrowly at the end, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, do, you, do you remember your, your Bradenton win? Uh, that... Uh, Yes, I believe I, I, I won it that year and the year following, so they mixed together to some extent. But I remember being, and still am, incredibly proud of that win because it's not Moroso, but it's the Winter Series, and it's something that I'd always read about growing up. And at that time, I, don't, I didn't go every year, but I had been going pretty religiously for about a decade and hadn't won one. And so that was really a like get over the hump moment, you know, and, sure. and kind of feel like uh, it was a big, big deal for me. I think there was one I ran John John Ticarone in the final, but I think that was the second one. I, I want to say I, I ran um, Jeff Ledford in that first final. Mike Ledford, Mike Ledford in that first final, but I, I wouldn't swear to that either. I think those were the two finals, but I'm not sure which year it was which. It's a good problem to have when you can't remember your, your, your last 10 or 20 grand or whatever. Sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's only been a decade. Yeah. So, but uh, no, I mean, good times. I, and I was actually just looking at the comments here. Uh, Matt Weston, who had, who had brought up the IHRA championships from uh, 2010, Matt mm -hmm. was actually the, the champion in Quick Ride. And I remember that, of all things, because that was actually the same weekend as the event at Reynolds that I was talking about earlier. And I remember someone telling me in the staging lanes that Matt had won the quick rod world championship and i was like i'm trying to win the nhra world championship like i don't even care but mm -hmm. I, I do care because i like Matt. so anyway matt won the quick rod world championships those were the runoffs at memphis that year and he just shared that uh, cameron Manuel was a champion in super rod that was at ihra's 990 category and kenny underwood surprise surprise uh that year's world champion in the ihra 1090 category mm -hmm. kevin anything else that jumps to mind from 2010 before we get out of here well, not offhand, but uh, if we want to get into some breaking news, while we were on the air, oh. NHRA has released their revised schedule, their latest review.
competition for the 2020 season and some things that, that we sort of expected that were coming. Um, there will be two July events at Lucas Oil Raceway here in Indy for pros, although I believe the second one will feature Promod, uh, Factory Stock, probably Nitro Harley, uh, a few things like that. So that, that will kick off NHRA's return to racing. Uh, and then it's basically a week off and then I believe 15 straight weeks, um, two notable changes. Unfortunately, they've had to drop the Sonoma event. It is no longer on the schedule. Um, but uh, there is an event added the week before the U.S. Nationals in Atlanta. Um, and, and also Joliet, as we expected, is off the schedule. Um, so, you know, you, you can find that pr pretty much everywhere. It's out. It's all over Facebook now. Um, but it, it, we had a conference call last week, and, and it really seemed the, the, it was probably the most positive sounding that, that I think anyone has been in, in management where they finally feel like they have a schedule that we can adhere to. Hopefully, you know, there's been a lot of work done as far as the various jurisdictions to figure out what you need to do to safely reopen. Uh, I do know the two kickoff events here at Indy will be limited fans um, because Indiana is not scheduled to fully open until uh, mid-July. But, but I think it's a case of if you are a U.S. national season ticket holder or you're an NHRA member, you can gain access to those events. Um, you know, again, limited numbers of tickets, but uh, it does mean that here in a little more than a month, um, we're, we're, we're going to be back national event racing. We know that sportsman guys will be going at it this weekend in Atlanta. That kicks off a, a pretty aggressive schedule between now and the end of the year. So really hopeful, fingers crossed, that we are this close to, to resuming some normalcy in our lives. Yeah, no, I, I love it. We're breaking news here on, on, on Wayback Wednesday. And granted, breaking news to me that our the people <laughs> watching are probably like, yeah, I just, I read that 15 minutes ago. But exactly right. Nonetheless, uh, that's cool. And, and yeah, like it just, um, in, a, in, a, in a year of so much uncertainty, like it just feels good to have some definition, to have clarity, to have dates on the calendar. Disappointing, obviously, that the series is not returning to Sonoma and Chicago, but yet predictable. Like I think yeah. most of us probably saw that coming giving, given the, uh, the current situation in both in those two States. So mm -hmm. Kevin, good stuff, man. Thank you again for coming on. Uh, thank you, whether you're watching on uh, Facebook or listening via the sportsman drag racing podcast feed, Kevin and I will be back again next week. We'll, we'll dial back the clock uh, just a few years. I think, I think we're going to go 2001 next week. So stay tuned okay. for that. Sounds good. I'm, uh, I'm ready and we'll, uh, We'll talk to you next Wednesday. All right. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss or at least reference This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling 
of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers. That's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.